beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Oh, happy day. Welcome friends. It is another book episode. My very favorite episodes of this show are the book conversations. This time I am joined by one of my very best friends, a returning guest to the show, Dr. Kara Pence. You might remember her from all the way back in episode six. If you've been here from the beginning, if you've binged the show, Kara joined me early, early on to talk about Judy Bloom and our deep love for Judy Bloom. On episode six, we did a revisit of some of our favorite Judy Bloom novels. I don't want to spoil that episode for you or anything, but I think we both literally cried while we were recording, <laughs> and maybe not from happiness. It was a great conversation back then, but Kara and I have actually been talking books with each other since the fifth grade. She's one of my oldest friends. We grew up in the same small town in Oklahoma. She is now a renowned surgeon. She is the chief of staff of a hospital. She is a mother of three, a wife of nearly 20 years. This woman is truly someone I admire as much as anyone else in the whole world. She is smart and funny and thoughtful, and she's a huge reader. So I loved sitting down with her to talk about the best books that we have read lately. We each share a few that we really want to talk through or recommend. And then there are two books, two bestsellers actually, that were new this fall that Kara and I both read and talk about today. So it's a super great conversation. I hope that you take something from it, that you add a few books to your to-read list, and that it encourages you to reach out to one of your best friends to talk about the best books that you have read lately. Before we jump all the way into the show, I have three things to tell you. Number one, I created a freebie sharing the top 10 books that have shaped me in my life, starting with my favorite book as a child, all the way up to a book that I read this year that I think will stick with me for the rest of my life. I put together 10 books that 
really either changed the way that I thought about something or shaped me into who I am. Maybe because I saw myself reflected on the page or something about the book revealed to me what I wanted for my future. In the freebie, I also give you some instructions and some space to make your own list, to brainstorm out your own list of the books that shaped you. I've been thinking a lot about this topic for a while now. I'm always thinking about books and reading And as much as we talk about books we enjoy or books we're learning from, I really wanted to just set aside a list, a moment to honor the books that really, truly shaped me. And I want you to think about that too. So to get this freebie where you can read all about the books that shaped me and have a little space to figure out the books that shaped you, I will put a link in the show notes. I will put a link on social media or you can go to 10thingstotellyou.com slash books shape us. That's kind of a clunky URL, but that is what this freebie is, talking about the books that have shaped us. If you want to sign up to receive that, you will be signing up to be on my secret post list. That is my monthly-ish newsletter that goes out with all the private thoughts that I do not want to share so publicly and openly on the World Wide Web, and also current recommendations for the books I'm reading, what I'm wearing, what podcasts I'm listening to, all of that goes into my secret post email. If you want to get the Books That Shaped Us freebie, you will have to sign up to be on that list. If you are already a Secret Post subscriber, thank you very much. You will be getting an email this week with that freebie already included, so hang tight. Secondly, also on the books theme, the 10 on the 10th social media challenge that I host every month on the 10th of the month for November is 10 favorite books. You can do your 10 favorite books of all time. You can do 10 favorite books in a particular genre. It doesn't really matter. I just want you to be sharing 10 of your favorite books, or if you're inspired by the freebie, share 10 books that shaped you. All you have to do to participate in this challenge is post your list on social media, on Instagram is primarily where we are. Make sure you tag the show at 10 things to tell you and make sure you use the hashtag 10 on the 10th. If you are listening to this episode after November 10th, it does not matter. You can still participate. If you tag the show, I still want to see your lists, and I'm still going to be sharing some of them up in stories, even after the 10th, I'm sure. So I really want to make sure you jump in on that challenge if you think that would be fun. Lastly, Kara and I recorded this episode late last week, and what happened was over the weekend, I finished a book that will be definitely, I think in my top five favorites for the year. Right now, it might be contender for best fiction I have read all year. I absolutely loved it, but it wasn't part of this conversation, so I'm going to tell you now what that is. The book is called Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. This was my first novel to read by Maggie O'Farrell. I had read one of her nonfiction books last summer, It was called I Am, I Am, I Am. It was beautiful, very well-written, but I just wasn't exactly sure what to expect of this brand new novel of hers titled Hamnet. It is historical fiction set in the 1500s, and it is very loosely based on William Shakespeare's family and the death of his son and how he wrote his most famous work, arguably the play Hamlet, after his child died. Now, of course, this was a long time ago. There's not a lot of facts known about this. There's an author's note in the book about how it was inspired by these events, but it's also primarily based on O'Farrell's imagination. So this isn't the type of book I would maybe necessarily pick up in general, historical fiction about Shakespeare's maybe family, also death of a child. Also, it just felt a little bit heavy for this exact moment in time. I'm not totally reaching for super light things necessarily, but this seemed like maybe particularly sad. However, I had seen from a few people really rave reviews about it, and I haven't read amazing novels lately. I've read a few. I've I've read some standouts, but in general, I was just really craving something super, super quality. So 
I cracked this one open last week and wow, I was absolutely blown away by how beautiful this book is. Now, it will not be for everyone. It is slow. It is perhaps more flowery than my usual taste. And as you might have already gathered, it is very, very sad. I actually can't remember off the top of my head the last time that I cried reading a book. I'm not a huge book crier in general, but sometimes it happens. This book had me absolutely weeping. I think that Maggie O'Farrell is an incredible writer. She can evoke so much emotion. And this book has some very devastating scenes that just had me reaching for the Kleenex. Now, if you're doing the math, you realize I started it last week. It was election week here in the US. Maybe everyone's emotions were a little extra fraught, extra frayed. It's true. I was probably more sensitive than usual, but it didn't affect my appreciation for how beautiful this book is. I really, really loved it. And again, it will end up on my list of favorites for the year, if not at the very top of that list. It's kind of competing with a novel that I read and talked about back in July, Deacon King Kong. I loved that book so much. And it is very, very different from Hamnet. But I just could not let this book episode go without me sharing how much I love this beautiful book because there's really going to only be one, maybe two book episodes left in this calendar year. So I want to take every opportunity I can when I come across an amazing work of fiction. And I believe that's what Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell was. Okay, those were all the things that I had to tell you. Now I want to turn to the conversation that I had with my dear friend, Dr. Kara Pence, about the best books we've read lately. My friend, welcome back to 10 Things to Tell You. I'm so happy to see your face, to hear your voice, because we have not talked publicly since we did a deep dive on Judy Bloom like a year and a half ago. That seems like yesterday. A lot has happened since then, clearly. But glad to be back. Thanks for having me. And you know, I always love a great book discussion. So can't wait to dive in today. You are one of my favorite people to talk about books with because we have a similar enough taste that we've often read the same thing so we can discuss them. But then we have a different enough taste that we sometimes disagree, which then makes for really good conversation. So I'm super excited to talk about some of these today. But first, before we get into sharing the best books that we've each read lately, I've been asking my guests on the book episodes for the last eight-ish months. I've been asking them what their reading life is like in 2020 in a pandemic because the world is so different this year in all kinds of ways, you know, for all kinds of reasons, frankly. And I really do think that it affects the way we read, whether we're reading for pleasure, whether we have to read for work, if we're audiobook listeners, if we're read for pleasure at night for hours, like in all the different ways that we are readers, it feels like it has been affected by this year. And so I want to continue that conversation on these episodes because I just want people to know they're not alone if their reading life has been disrupted or high five if they're coping by just reading and reading and reading. <laughs> so I want to ask you, Kara, just share a little bit about what your reading life has been like in 2020 as you, a medical surgeon, is in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, yeah, it's been a weird year. So I will say that just I think most people have been outside a lot more and I've been a lot more active outside just doing a long walk with the dog or my family has gotten into cycling. My son is a boy scout and he did the 150 mile biking cycling badge um, that the whole family got involved in. And so a lot of that time I have my earbuds in and I'm listening to audiobooks. So although I have enjoyed a good audiobook here and there over the course of my you know adult reading life, I would say that now I'm doing a lot more audiobooks just because I'm outside more walking the dog or just trying to get a change of scenery in this COVID world. And that has actually been really fun. I've found myself reading a lot more than usual because of that. Also, I'm having to read a lot of research and medical literature. And so I will say that the maybe 
caliber of book that I'm reading is a little different. A couple of years ago, a mutual friend of ours, Lee Kramer, got me into just dabbling here and there in some romance. <laughs> and so I have, I have read a little bit more romance just because at the end of the day, I don't want to read anything heavy. And you know me, Laura, like I love a good heavy book. My favorite books are the ones that I sob or, you know, have some life-changing aha moment with, but through COVID, I'd say that's the biggest difference that I find myself sitting down at night instead of wanting to read a nonfiction memoir about something tragic, like The Sound of Gravel, one of the best books we've ever read, right? That would have been my old go-to relax at night novel. Um, But now I'm like, "Mm, a little penny read is good. A little romance is sometimes fun to read. So that's my big confession. So it's not a confession. And I think it's funny that you even like frame it like it is, you know, something we should be whispering about because my last guest on a books episode was Christine Coe, who is also a doctor, different type of doctor. She's a PhD, you know, very highly educated, and she has also turned to romance. And so I think that it is very funny. It's like hilarious that you know, some of the smartest women I know are like, you know what I'm doing in the pandemic? I'm reading a little sexy time. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to give a little update on what my reading life has been like in the pandemic because it has really changed. I talked in the spring a lot about how I could not read novels. I could not read fiction because just the way my brain was sort of churning back at the beginning of the pandemic, I was just only able to concentrate on nonfiction that shifted, you know, after, I don't know, not that anybody settled in (laughs) to what's happening, but, you know, like after this sort of immediate deep fear of the unknown, that part sort of passed. Then I was able to read some novels over the summer. And as we came back to Los Angeles and school started for my kids, but they're remote learning at home. Jeff went back to work. I'm still working full-time. I've been working full-time all year. I felt like once again, after a little bit of a relaxed summer where we didn't have a lot of structure because we didn't have a lot of activities because we're in a pandemic where I read a lot, Once the fall hit and our family was just as busy, it seems like, as every fall, not because of activities, but just because we are all together in the same space all the time. So once again, I felt like my brain just got a little bit fried in the last couple of months, and I haven't read as much as I would have wanted to when we supposedly have all this time, which is a myth. We actually do not have extra time right now because we're doing a whole different set of tasks than we would be normally doing. Anyway, I have a stack of books that I need to get to. First of all, my to read stack is insanely huge right now and also insanely interesting and quality. I cannot remember the last time I had a stack of books that I want to read every single one. I mean, I have like probably 20 books that I've purchased on my Kindle or through book of the month or just you know, because I wanted them and all of them I'm excited about. So the other thing I want to ask you is about your to read list or sort of just about your reading life in general. Something I've been thinking a lot about is being a little bit more deliberate about planning what I'm reading. So in general, I just read whatever I'm in the mood for. I always have a to read list going. There's always interesting things in my stack And I just pick up what I'm in the mood for. Very occasionally will I pair it with some sort of event. Like I had a few books that I wanted to finish before the election, which I did, but that is very rare. In general, throughout the year, I just read what I want to. But right now with so many good things to read and also in trying to be a lot more deliberate about reading other voices, reading things that I need to learn more about, frankly, that I need to educate myself on, all of that. I mean, I always have that in my mind loosely and I like always try to, you know, pick up a variety of books, but I don't have like a plan. You know what I mean? And sometimes people have messaged me like their plans because I post what I'm reading on, you know, Instagram or something. And then someone will be like, oh, I am going to read this when I travel to Ireland in 2023. And I'm like, well, you have planned that? Or they'll be like, oh, I am planning out my holiday reading. And I'm like, "You what? You're doing what? And normally I would sort of dismiss, not dismiss the people, but dismiss that idea just because that's not how my brain works. That's not how my reading life works. Like, oh, great. Good for you. Whatever. But for some reason now, I think maybe because my to read stack is 
borderline overwhelming, but all things I'm excited about. And I'm like, I feel like I need to have a plan or I will never get these things read because more shiny things will will keep coming into my life. And I will never get to some of these books that I genuinely want to. And so I was going to ask if you are just a read what you're in the mood for person, or if you're a plan person and like, how do you feel about it as just an idea? I love the plan. It never works out because for me, because of the mood situation. So I did not plan long-term what books I want to read. Now, if there is a book that comes out, for instance, the book in a holidays just came out and that's a Christmas book. And so I got it on release day last month and I'm going to save it till Christmas time because sometimes if I know I have a vacation scheduled and I know that something I've heard from someone else, this is a great vacation book, then I'll save it for vacation. But that's about the only planning that I do. I think book clubs a lot. I have a book club that I meet with and that clearly, you know, requires a little bit of planning. But other than that, I just read as the spirit moves me, if you will. So sometimes that means that I end up reading multiple books at a time, which sometimes is not very productive because it takes me a long time to slog through multiple books. But I don't know if you have this problem, but sometimes I start to read a book. I really want to read the book. I Somebody I trust told me this is a great book. It's going to really be a game changer. And so I want to stick with it, but it just isn't grabbing me. And so I need to set it down for a while and come back. And that's how my to read stack gets so, so large. So I do think it's interesting when we discussed it, a lot of times my backlog books are things you've read. And I think some of the things we're going to talk about today, I read that are on your back list. And so I do think I plan what I want to read a lot of times based on people that I trust. I know that it's going to be a great book, but that's, man, it really allows your to read stack to get, to get out of control. But another side of this problem, I think this is actually a bigger piece of the wanting to be intentional about what I'm reading of my personal puzzle there is that in the last, I'd say two to three-ish years, maybe I have read books that are incredible, like some of my favorite books of that year or whatever. And then often people will say, oh, you should read their other book, like a backlist book from this author. And I'll be like, I should because I really loved their writing or like, this was amazing. And I just never get to it. I read a a bestseller, you know, a new book that even if it's fine, it is going to be substantially subpar to whatever this amazing author that I have just read is. And why am I doing that? It's such a weird way to think about things just because those other books are older. And right now I'm thinking of Elizabeth Strout, who I'm in love with. She has several older books that I've never read. What am I doing this year? James McBride, who wrote Deacon King Kong, which is in my top two or three for the year. He has older books that I definitely need to read. Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote Cast, which we're going to talk about. She won the Pulitzer Prize. She wrote The Warmth of Other Suns, which people have talked about for years. I want to get to those books. And what happens is years go by because I have other authors where I'm in this same situation. Years go by and I never get to those books. And I just feel like a little bit ADD about it, not to diminish ADD, but you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, oh, this is like, so not how I want my reading life to go. There's so many great books. How do you pick the next book? I just have to go back to what grabs me, what feels right in the moment, but we're going to die someday and not have read all the great books. This is a tragedy. Well, yeah. I mean, when you break it down like that, I guess it's true. It's true. Okay. So before we share our individual books that we've read and want to recommend to people, or at least talk through, I want us to discuss, and we have not done this offline. This will be like a true discussion between us. I want us to discuss two recent bestsellers that we have both read and have feelings about. So the first one is Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. I got this one through Book of the Month after hearing 
multiple people who read books early, you know, post about them, like this is going to be the book of the fall. I didn't know anything about him. I just ordered it blindly. It felt like my type of book and it sure was my type of book. What did you like that book? And we will have no spoilers in this conversation. Uh, We really won't. This one would be hard to spoil anyway, because, (laughs) because what happens? Does anyone know? I don't know. (laughs) I... Loved this book. So I also got it through Book of the Month. And I got it because any post-apocalyptic, if that's what it was, I don't even know, but anything like that, I love those kind of books. And so that's why I got it. But I thought it was fascinating. I mean, I think I know what happened. You do? So let me explain to the listeners the sort of very loose premise of this book, which I did not know when I ordered it. Basically, this family that lives in New York City, a mom, dad, son, and daughter, they like Airbnb a house out in the country in the middle of nowhere to just like get out of the city for a full week. You know, it doesn't have good Wi-Fi or good cell service or whatever. They're really trying to like maybe reconnect. The mom works a lot, whatever. And so they go out to this house far away from the city and on their second or third night there, there is a knock on the door and it's a couple that has shown up and they ring the doorbell. And that's all I'll say. But this book, I was so into the descriptions of the family members. All four family members were so interesting to me and their family dynamic. And it's like the first you know, quarter of the book is you're really just getting to know this family and why they felt the need to get out of the city, what their sort of relationship is to each other. There's some dysfunction there, but there's also a lot of love. Like it actually sort of felt like, yeah, this is like an American family, you know, sort of normal. The kids are teenagers. And then this is a particularly hard book to talk about without spoilers, but also a series of things happen and you you don't actually know what happens. (laughs) I don't know. How do you want to even describe Like, it's very unknown. And I will say this for people who haven't read it yet and are just listening. A lot of people have problems with books that are not just exactly, this is what's happening. This is the plot. This is it. Like very cut and dry where there's not, there might be character interpretation and and depth, but there's not like a vagueness to the actual events in the story. I don't mind that in a book. So another example of this from another author we're going to talk about today is In the Woods with Tana French, which reads like a detective whodunit kind of novel. And it's really not that. There's a lot of sort of vague plot points that people thought were going to be wrapped up. And they're just infuriated by that book. I feel like I can say that because that book is years and years old. But I wasn't infuriated. I thought it was like fantastic to leave up interpretation to the reader of what is happening externally when normally that's sort of flipped where there might, you might know exactly what's happening in the plot, but there's some vagueness to the, you know, you're supposed to interpret what's happening with the characters. And in this book, leave the world behind, it's the opposite. You kind of know exactly what's happening with the characters. You don't understand what's happening in the world. There has been a world event and you are unsure because they're out there without power, without Wi-Fi. They don't know. The reader doesn't know. It's like a super interesting way to structure a book. So number one for me was the writing I thought was just awesome. I loved the descriptions. Like you said, I loved how he worded certain things that we all are frustrated about and just the way that he put pen to paper, I just thought was great. The other thing was just as I was reading and I was like, what would I do if I couldn't part of the commentary, maybe on the book is what do we do when we don't have access to all the conveniences that the internet brings? You know, they, the husband at one point needs to go into town to try to get some groceries or get some information and has no idea how to get there because we are so reliant on our GPSs and on our phones And so, you know, did you download the movie or are you just streaming the movie? How do you keep the kids, you know, happy whenever you don't have that technology? How do you get anything done and just the reliance on technology? And if we can't just click on the news and know what's going on, how do you find that out? 
and who do you trust and those kind of things. So I thought the book was fascinating. Well, and another element that really stood out to me after the, what would we do without technology? Because we don't even know, like, we don't have phone numbers memorized anymore. We don't know how to get anywhere without GPS. We'd all those things you said already, we would really be at a loss, like would suddenly feel very primitive. We don't even use parts of our brains that we used to use because now our phones, computers do it all for us. The other part of the story was trusting our neighbors and the people who knock on the door have some information. They ultimately end up seeking some information elsewhere in the neighborhood, in the book, whatever, and and run into other neighbors. And it's like, there's such a distrust and trust. Like you, you're sort of forced to trust one another. You don't have a lot of other choice in a, you know, in a big world event happens, but there's a, you know, you don't trust a hundred percent. You're like, well, I'm sort of forced into the situation, but I'm having some distrust here. And I thought that was so interesting because you're like, well, where does that distrust come from? Why is our instinct sometimes to be like, I don't know. I don't know if I should trust you or not. Like, I didn't blame any of the characters in this book for being like, uh, <laughs> you know, we're like taught that it's smart to be so careful with other humans, like to not let them all the way in literally or metaphorically. But then you're also like, but why, why do we think that? I think, no, I mean, I think we have lots of historical evidence that people didn't always trust each other because when they did, they major issues happened. But I will say in this particular book, part of it was the technology because they couldn't double check what they were being told or that led to more fear and more speculation and more distrust. It was that cyclical. I can't double check that. Nobody could double check. So everybody's just left with more questions. Right. But human to human, face to face, that's not enough for us. You know, it's just interesting. I just thought that part was super interesting too. Okay. So that's Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. Okay. So let me change it up a bit. We've talked about that. And then we have another book that we've both read that we're going to talk about in a minute. But I kind of want to hear some of the things that you have read that you want to share with the listeners. What is the first book, you know, is one of the best things you've read lately that you want to talk about? I read and actually listened to it on Audible, The Sun Does Shine by Mr. Anthony Hinton. I read it because it was a good follow-up to the book, Just Mercy. And it's a story about a man who was falsely convicted of a heinous crime in Alabama and spent 28 years on death row and was exonerated and set free. Laura, it was so hopeful. And this man, Mr. Hinton, took his circumstances, saw the best in them, created a book club in his situation, was an encourager. He became deeply respected by all around him. And he just kept believing that no matter what, he needed to be in charge of his own circumstances. He needed to be in charge of his attitude. While he was in jail, you mean? On death row. He was cells away from the death chamber. And towards the end of the book, this is not a giveaway, but towards the end of the book, he literally lists he reads out loud and names these people that died while he was there for 28 years. It was one of the most moving things that I've ever, and I'm, I'm glad for that reason that I listened to it on Audible because I listened to those names and I took them into my heart. And it was just, it was so good. And I highly recommend this book. But recently I saw just on Tuesday, I saw on social media that Mr. Hinton got to vote for the first time since his exoneration in this 2020 election. It was just so wonderful. I wish I had the words to adequately express it. I mean, there, there's a lot of meat in this book. It's a very heavy book. It's a very sad book. He, I would think, doesn't want you to see it as sad. I think he would want you to see it as hopeful and to take whatever your circumstances are. And just the things that he said throughout his entire situation. He always proclaimed his innocence. He was never ugly and awful to the people who were very ugly and awful and evil to him. There's just no other way of talking about it. And just the way that he handled himself is an example to everybody, just way beyond what anybody would have thought was necessary that anybody could have been capable of. 
and just looking at your circumstances and, and making the best of them. Not that I don't think he would say, I mean, he says in the book, it's not like, you know, every day was, I'm just so glad I'm here. It wasn't that, but it was, these are my circumstances. I'm going to make the best of this. I'm going to keep believing. I'm never going to give up. Um, and I'm going to befriend everyone here, no matter what they did, no matter what brought them here and what, what that was like seeing people go through the death process and the humanity of that. It was just a beautiful, beautiful book. I highly recommend this. I think this is in your to read stack and I would urge you to read it. It was for sure one of the most worthwhile things I've probably read in my entire life. If you have read Just Mercy, it's going to be a really good adjunct to that book um, because it's one of the stories that is told briefly in that book, but from his standpoint. So The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Hinton. I'm so glad you talked about that book. It has been in my to read stack for forever. People recommended it to me for years, I feel like. And I read Just Mercy also several years ago. It's been quite a few years ago now. That was one of the first books that I read when I was starting to learn more about racial justice or racial injustices in America. And I definitely almost want to revisit Just Mercy as well, not in in place of reading The Sun Does Shine. But I read it when I was just beginning to learn some of these things. And I still had some hesitations. You know, I still held that book a little bit at arm's length. And which is funny, I did not know this was going to like loosely tie into what we just talked about, about like trusting people um, with their stories and, and with what the information is that they're giving you. But anyway, I feel like if I read that book now, I would have a different perspective. It also is a good lead into one of the books that I wanted to talk about, which is Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. I'm sure you have seen this around. It is everywhere this fall. It is going to be on so many best of end of the year lists. I feel sure it's been a bestseller. Oprah picked it for her book club. I bought it because as you know, as the listeners know, learning about race in America is very important to me and just educating myself and pointing people towards the best resources on this topic. And so I really wanted to read this book, but I'll be honest, I thought it was going to be like a textbook. I just, the description of it is, and I don't mean textbook in a bad way necessarily, but just like going to be like a dry informational history of some things in our country. The subtitle is The Origins of Our Discontent. And the you know most broad premise is that Isabel Wilkerson, who is an amazing writer, and she ran the Pulitzer Prize. She wrote The Warmth of Other Suns, which I haven't read, but it's on my list. She traveled to India to study their you know centuries-old caste system there to compare it to what has happened in America, a much younger country. And you know the outside view of that might be like, oh, there is no comparison to race relations, even with our, our history of slavery, to the caste system in India. It feels like it would be very, very different. And she's really arguing that it's not. There are so many similarities to how humans like to categorize people into tiers of worthiness and of humanity. And we like to do this not just from intangible things with salary and various privileges, but also like by sight, we want to be able to know right away what category, what label you can be stuck into. And that is just the most basic level of our race problem is like literal skin color. And of course it goes so much deeper than that. But anyway, my point is I started it thinking, okay, this is a book I should read. It's obviously very important. I care a lot about this topic, but you know, there's so much heaviness this year and I have read plenty of heavy things this year also, but you know what I mean? Like we were talking about mood wise, I started it in a place of, I should read this. And instead of a place of, I'm you know excited to learn more about this. Well, holy cow. I mean, page one, I was in, she makes this very, you know, heartbreaking topic, fascinating to read. It's so interesting. She's such a good storyteller. The people that she's interviewed and the stories that she's telling and the way that she's laying out history is so compelling. It is not like a textbook. It is not a chore to read this book. It is a privilege to read this book in this way and learn these things, some of which I knew, many of which I did not know. 
you know, it's, it's hard material, of course, but I just want to encourage people to read this book and not be like sort of nervous about like, oh, this isn't how I want to spend an hour or, oh, it's so thick. You know, it's a lot of pages. It is important, first of all, but also amazing. It is definitely going to be one of my best books of the year. And I just don't want people to shy away from it because the other heaviness of the year is you know, doesn't make you want to reach for it. It is compelling reading. You're going to be talking about this at the dinner table. You're going to be saying, did you know this? You know, it is really, really an excellent book. And that's cast. I'm sure everyone has seen it. The Origins of Our Discontent by Isabel Wilkerson. Okay, what's next? What do you want to share with us next? So I finished very recently The Institute by our favorite Stephen King. I thought this book was absolutely phenomenal. Now, the premise of the book is that there is this unbelievably smart young man who is growing up in a small town and his sweet parents are trying to navigate his genius. And he's basically stolen away in the middle of the night and taken to this institute. So that's the basic premise of the book. But I will say it's not a very typical Stephen King book, I didn't feel like. Usually, Mr. King is extremely wordy in the most beautiful way. I felt like this was a much more to-the-point book for him of, than the other ones that I've read. I thought it was so good. It was such a fast-paced plot. I read it so quickly. You know, his books are very well known for being extremely lengthy. This one wasn't as lengthy as some of the other ones, but it was still 500-ish pages. But I still read it in just a few days really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved the, like I said, the pacing was great. The story was great. A lot of his books deal with children and tragic things that happen to children. So that's a little bit of a reader warning there, but this was, I thought one of his more excellent books and I highly recommend the Institute. My friends and I talked about it. A whole bunch of us read it together. We all loved it. So, and I know you read that one too, Laura. I read the Institute last year and I can't remember why I picked it up right away when it came out because I don't do that with Stephen King, even though he is my favorite author. First of all, he writes so much. Everything he writes is not of equal quality. And so being a Stephen King fan, I can kind of pick and choose like what I'm going to relate to or not. I did think that the Institute was more of a like quote unquote traditional book. It wasn't ultra Stephen Kingy. It is not horror. It is more like a thriller. So there's, you know, kidnapping and some paranormal activity, if you will, but it is not horror. And I don't even like the phrase horror because I think for mostly women listening here and they hear that and they're out. Like they hear Stephen King and they're out. They have no idea that he writes books that are not scary in the way that they think that they're scary. Now they're thriller. So they're like a little bit stressful and sometimes people are harmed and that kind of thing, but they're not horror like monsters and demons and devils. And like, it's not like that. This was a traditional thriller in a way and more traditional than Stephen King in that it did not it did not have a whole tangent. A lot of times his books will have like a B and C plot that are like completely like almost unrelated. Like they're like books within books, you know? And this was not that. This was like a straight narrative and it was really good. It grew on me. I kind of vaguely remember that when I finished it, I was like, yeah, that was pretty good. Okay. You know, four stars. I love his writing. Good story, blah, blah. But then as time went on, different things have happened where I remembered like scenes in that book later, six months later. And I'm like, oh, that book has stayed with me more than I thought when I got to the last page. Like, it is a good book. It is. And and I think it's not an entry point, Stephen King. If you've never, ever read Stephen King, I don't know that I would say this is like a perfect representation of that. But I do think it is. I have no problem recommending it to people with the thriller caveat and, like you said, with the child caveat where hard things happen to children, if that's a thing for you. But it's not horror. No, it is It is exactly what you said. It is a fast-paced, well-written, great plot. It's definitely something that if you like thrillers, you would love this book. Do you want to talk about a good entry point Stephen King book? Do you have a suggestion? I think anybody getting into King should just start with Pet Cemetery. I've read it twice. I reread it recently. 
the good things about it are it's classic King. It is scary with the paranormal side. It is one of his briefest books. It's only three or 400 pages. It's just so classic. And you know, I went to the beautiful town of Bangor, Maine, which is where a lot of his, that's where he lives. I got to see his house. It was like the classic crazy fan. Went to the cemetery where, you know, he got the name Georgie and where, you know, a lot of scenes from the movie were filmed. And, but that is such a great book. Again, child caveat. So I know you are not a fan of rereading that book. But I think that's a great entry point just because of the length and because of the classic nature. I mean, that, that's a great book of just kind of well representative of his style of writing and, and the style, the, the genre, which I think is very specific to his writing. Well, you are right that it is much more representative of Stephen King. It is a classic. The plot is, you know, unlike anything you've ever read, which to me is the biggest benefit to Stephen King is not just his writing, his literal sentences, which I love so much, but also the stories he makes up are, you've never read anything like them. No one has. There is no storyteller like Stephen King. His worlds are so unique. And it's in some ways with these classic books like Pet Cemetery, we don't realize how unique they are because there's been things that have imitated him after. And so maybe if you read Pet Cemetery now, you wouldn't realize like how incredible that book was. I tried to reread it with you, or maybe we just talked about it. I don't know if this is at the same time, but but recently, and I couldn't hack it. And listen, I am not a sensitive reader, and that book is so scary. <laughs> and I made it, I don't know, the first 50 pages, and I hadn't read Pet Cemetery in decades. Like, I don't think I'd read it since I was a teenager. And so I'm bopping along, reading it, enjoying myself some King. And then I start to remember what's about to happen. Like I'd completely forgotten the sort of main big event that happens at the beginning of the book. And I was like, oh, oh no, I'm starting to, as he's like foreshadowing it and I'm starting to remember, I'm like, oh no, oh no, 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 no. I actually can't watch this. I have little children still. This is freaking me all the way out. And then it was like it, the flood of everything that was going to happen. It's like I'd forgotten what this book was about until I started reading it. And then I was like, I absolutely 1000% cannot read this. It is so scary, but it is an entry point if you are willing to take on Stephen King. A lot of people who listen to this show, are they're just never going to be into that kind of writing, into that kind of story. So I tell them that if they want to experience like the amazingness of Stephen King, but without the scariness, I want everybody to read 112263. That is one of my favorite books of all time. And it is very different than some of King's other things because it's not scary. It's time travel. Again, it's a little thrillery. It's not as thrillery as the Institute, but it is time travel. And it is, uh, this doesn't give anything away. It's uh, someone sort of finds a hole in time, if you will, and wants to go back and stop the JFK assassination. So it's sort of almost like a, not that that's a generic plot, but maybe that plot has been done-ish before something like it. And that book is unlike anything. It is so good. It is also 1 million pages long. But that's, I don't know if I would say that's an entry point, but it's the one that I point people to when they're like, I want to experience what you're describing about Stephen King, but I don't want to be scared. Then I say, oh, well, then you should read 112263. It will blow any reader's mind. I think that book is just so excellent. I agree. It is second only to it of King's works for me, but wow, what an amazing, amazing book. If you're not daunted at all, if it's not daunting to you to read a literal a thousand page book, you should pick that up immediately. Okay. Well, this sort of segues a little bit adjacent to talk about a book that we have both read that is sort of thrillery, sort of, I don't even know what you would categorize this book, but let's go ahead and dive on into The Searcher by Tana French. Okay. Now listen, I am a Tana French fan girl. I've read every novel that she has published. I've talked about her online for years. I am not sure she will be on my pre-order list moving forward. After The Witch Elm, which was her previous book, and after The Searcher, which is this book that just came out, I loved the Dublin Murder Squad mysteries that she wrote 
early on, it appears that her writing career is taking a different direction. And I'm like, good for her, but not for me. I would love for her to write some sort of, here's why I wrote this book, or let me explain this to you, my faithful readers, because I too have read every book. Your favorite is The Likeness. My favorite is In the Woods. I thought that book was bananas good. So good. She always, I say always until this, the past few books, there has been almost a supernatural, you know, you don't really know what exactly, and there's, it's left to your imagination, which is very fun as a reader for me, at least. This book, although it did have some beautiful sentences and some good relationship character development, there just isn't a lot of things that happen. And so the reason I kept reading this, I didn't want to put it down because of my history of love for her books, but I, I just, I really kept expecting, okay, something supernatural is going to happen or something exciting is going to happen. It just didn't. It was not a very fast moving plot. I think, I mean, it was maybe 75% in before something happened. Am I exaggerating? I mean, I think we can safely say, please read the likeness. Please read in the woods. I didn't mind the witch elm even compared to the searcher. No, I'm so sad that I didn't like it because I do like her writing and I don't mind a character driven book if I'm really invested in the character. But for me, this book was a miss on both counts. I wasn't invested in the main character or the main three-ish characters. There's very few characters in this book. There's like five total or something with like just some periphery people. But I didn't care about any of them. I didn't care about their relationships to one another. And that's just one thing has to work. If you're not going to have plot, you have to have character. If you're not going to have much character, you have to have a super interesting plot. And I just felt like that this book didn't have either. I agree with you that she's a good writer. Like I didn't mind reading her sentences. It it wasn't a drag to read it, but I, you know, when I reached the 120 page mark or whatever, and literally nothing had happened. I mean, literally nothing had happened. Yeah. I mean, the character driven books that are so well done that you've spoken about, I just read, you know, all of Kitteridge and all of again recently. And that That is not a lot of plot, beautiful character-driven novel. This was not that. There wasn't any examining of your own life because you can see, you know, what happened with this man. I mean, the main character of the book is, and he finds himself in this small town across the ocean in another country because of some life choices and a divorce and something that happened with his daughter and a complicated relationship there, but there's never enough explanation for you to draw any conclusions or bring that into your own life and how this can be a valuable way to learn about your own life. I just, it was, it was a miss. It was a miss. And also I felt the whole time, like I was missing what might've been a major point. I mean, there's some, some references obviously to, you know, drug culture, opioid epidemic, like some things like that, that are obviously also happening in America. There were some dynamics like that, and some small town dynamics that I could, you know, could see where she was going with that. But similar to The Witch Elm, which I also didn't like at first, not as much as this. I liked it more than I liked The Witch Elm more than I liked The Searcher. But it was sort of three stars for me until I had a really fascinating book club conversation on my old podcast. I'll link to it if anyone cares to hear a good conversation about that book with my friends, Yasmin and Stephanie. And they had really good sort of a political perspective on the witch elm, which I read it as like a murder mystery. I mean, it is a murder mystery, but they made me look at that book in a different light in terms of some political things they thought Tana French was doing with that book that I, that I sort of missed the first go around a little bit. So I kept thinking that maybe that's what was happening in the searcher, that there was some kind of like Irish political statement that I was like not understanding. Well, that's why I think maybe a statement from her would be valuable or a some sort of, you know, author interview. And I wonder if it's out there and I just need to go search for it, but maybe it was better than I realized. Okay. Well, we're in agreement that we did not care for the searcher. We're bummed to say it because we both love this author. You know, I don't 
talk a ton about books that I don't love. I don't share it on social media too much. I will occasionally talk about it on the podcast because I think this is sort of the place to do that, be able to sort of talk it through without just like randomly slamming an author online. I don't like that. I do always put the books that were misses for me in the secret posts. And so anyway, well, okay. (laughs) So we talked about a book we don't love. Moving on. Okay. What's the next one that you have? Thirst. A Story of Redemption, Compassion, and a Mission to Bring Clean Water to the World by Scott Harrison. This book, it came up on my library app and I needed an Audible book and the title grabbed me. So I downloaded it. This book is phenomenal on Audible. If you're an Audible person, I highly recommend it. It's read by the author. He has such a joy and enthusiasm in the way that he reads his story. This is a guy who, when he was 28 years old, he was kind of at the top of his game. He was a nightclub promoter in New York City. He describes himself as kind of this being in this endless cycle of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, if you will. And he came from a really conservative background. And for whatever reason, he just got in his heart to want to change his life. And so the book basically is about how he creates this nonprofit, the joys and the struggles of the nonprofit. The nonprofit is called Charity Water and how the mission of the nonprofit is to bring clean water to people across the world and how clean water literally changes lives. It's good for the health of the community. It's good for, for everyone. And how if a healthy community has water that the, the community will do better. And it's, it's just such a foundational need for every single human on the planet. And just the struggles that he went through, the passion that he has. I mean, he slept on couches. He went from really having it all to giving it all up for other people. It's a very Mother Teresa, if you will, kind of story. And it was so inspiring. Today, um, according to the book at the time, he's raised over $300 million to bring clean water to 8.2 million people and growing. I mean, I'm sure that number is much more by now. I believe this book was published several years ago. I would highly recommend it. It is so inspiring. It will make you want to immediately go and give to Charity Water. And I know that Laura, you have a special relationship with this. Yes. When you sent me over the list of books that you were maybe going to talk about today, I was thrilled to see this book on there. I actually haven't read it, disclosure, but Jeff and I have been involved with Charity Water for years now. I think over 10 years, we have been working with Charity Water and they are an excellent organization. I cannot say enough about them. This is not an advertisement for them in any way. It's funny because just recently for the One Day HH Challenge, I was actually on a a conference call with Charity Water. And so I tagged them in the post that I shared on social media and realized maybe this is something I should talk more about. So it just feels like very natural that then this has come up that you read Scott Harrison's book. I do love this organization. I did not know when we first got involved, I think it was 2010, the depth, pun not intended, of the water problem worldwide. And I actually traveled uh, with, with some other organizations to Sri Lanka. I have been in parts of the world where I saw with my own eyes the links to which people have to go to just get clean water for their family and for their community. They have to walk miles. Often the water is polluted. This is the source of lots of disease in certain countries. And so to me, when Jeff and I got involved with the water problem worldwide and then eventually charity water specifically, it was just like, this is a problem that needs to be solved. It is, if we, if we could really help the water problem, it would help. So it was one, it's one of those problems that then would alleviate so many other rungs of the ladder. Do you know what I mean? It's not political. It's not controversial. Like we can all agree on clean water. I love charity water. I really enjoy Scott Harrison. I've met him a couple of times now. He is very enthusiastic. His enthusiasm for this, for raising money for water projects around the world is completely contagious. He's just one of those personalities. And I've been meaning to read his book, but I haven't. So I'm so glad you have and could now recommend it. I guess I'll listen to it on Audible, actually. This is the, I don't do much Audible, but this is the type of book I would do, I think. 
Also, if you buy the book, 100% of his profits go to Charity Water. So it's another good reason to buy the book. Okay. So I have my last book I'm going to talk about very quickly because there's not a, a huge ton to say about it, but I wanted to bring it up because it is fascinating. It is the novel Women Talking by Miriam Tays. You know that you are the one who first told me about Miriam Tays because she wrote the book, A Complicated Kindness, and you recommended that one to me and I didn't read that one. Sorry. I did end up reading Women Talking. (laughs) I think because it was a Kindle deal or something. So I bought it for 99 cents or whatever on my Kindle. And now this book will not be for everyone. I just want to say that. It is one of those books similar to, I don't know, I feel like The Dinner was this way. There's certain books where it it almost reads like a play. So the whole thing takes place in like one room and it is literally women talking. So the basis of this story is very sadly based on a real event. This is a Mennonite community in the book. And it is based on real events that happened with a Mennonite community in Bolivia where eight men there drugged the women of their community using like a cow anesthetic, like an animal, a farming anesthetic, drugged them, made them unconscious, and then raped them. And this really happened. Well, the book is a fictional version of a Mennonite community in Canada. The author, Miriam Taze, is Canadian, and she grew up Mennonite. And this event has already happened. There has been a rape of their women, and the women of the community have met together in a room to talk about what they're going to do. They don't have any means of justice. You know, they're in a community that, you know, there's not like a police force or, or, you know, that kind of thing. So they are meeting to talk about how to proceed, you know, like, are they going to leave? Are they going to stay? Are they going to punish the men in some way? Is there going to be, is there going to be some sort of a justice played out? Are they going to withhold themselves as a way of punishment? I mean, there's a, a, it's a meeting. The narrator of the book is the only man allowed in the room. And the only reason he is there is because he can read and write and the women cannot read and write. And so he is like taking minutes. He's like taking notes almost. And so we are reading this book. That's why it reads a little bit like a play, not only because it's just one room full of women talking, because you're almost reading like his notes, like, and then she said, and then she said, and he's giving some comment. He, the narrator is giving some commentary and maybe giving some backstory on a little bit of the women as they talk, but the book is women is just women talking. <laughs> it's pretty short. The reason I'm mentioning it besides it's, I think it's just a, you know, really interesting structure to write a book like this, but she does such a good job of capturing the nuances of women's relationship to one another and how, you know, they defer to an elder, they can snark at each other, the way that women can be manipulative sometimes in sort of what they're doing in this meeting. But also while there's like a a show of strength, of course, in the meeting of women, you're also just painfully aware of their overall vulnerability. They are at the mercy of these men and this community and this religion that tells them they have no choice and no voice and no way to even express it because they can't read and write either. So I just thought she did such a good job of balancing the strength and the vulnerability and the nuances of women's relationships with one another and how there's like a lot of love one moment and then like cat fight the next minute. And, you know, there's sisters, there's mother daughters, there's all of this in, you know, it's not a book for everyone. And it took a little more concentration than I have these days with sort of my frazzled brain a little bit. Their names are very unusual. And this is actually hard for me sometimes to, when names are really, really unusual, it's hard for me to keep them straight. I love Russian literature, but Russian names are also hard for me. So like, it's just, especially when you're, you know, what I'm talking about with your brain and, and I'm reading it on Kindle, so I can't like go back and look. So it took a little bit more concentration than I was expecting, but it, this is what we're talking about. And so that's why I wanted to mention it. It's called Women Talking by Miriam Tays. Okay. Listen, that is so much book talk. That is so much book talk. It was so fun. It's my favorite topic. You're one of my favorite people. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It should be noted, listeners, that she recorded this episode with me. Again, surgeon, chief of staff of her hospital, like saving lives on the daily. She recorded this episode with me on her week off, first of all. And secondly, her child 
had unexpected surgery earlier in the day. I tried to cancel. She refused. We recorded anyway. I'm so grateful to you, my friend, for being on 10 Things to Tell You with me again in the middle of your very busy and important life. Thank you for having me so much. It was, as I told you, the bright spot in the week that I looked forward to all week. So thank you for not not, uh, letting me cancel. My kiddo is fine. He just has a little arm break. He's fine. Everything's fine. I'm Laura Tremaine, and you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.